Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Some respect the property of others. What are you doing to lead us a... The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Riddy Clappy. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. The moment has arrived. We are taking your calls, your questions, your SMSs for The Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, good morning. Morning. Lovely to have you with us again. Okay, here's where I'd like us to start. Scientists have started compiling Southern Africa's first genetic library. What is genome sequencing and why is it relevant? Relevant. Okay, mm-hmm. well, everybody has their own individual genetic sequence. And the only exception to this is if you have been cloned or you are a natural clone in the form of a twin that's an identical twin or identical triplets. Because in that case, the egg that made you with a unique set of DNA chromosomes has divided during development into a separate number of embryos, but you are therefore genetically identical to your twin or triplet and so on. Everyone else on Earth has no other person who has the same genetic makeup Mm -hmm. as they do. And this means that we can use this information to identify individuals. We can also marry up the, D- the DNA sequence with any diseases that a person develops or particular traits that a person has to understand how genetic sequences cause us to get certain diseases or to look the way we do or to behave the way we do. And then there's the whole question of where did we all come from? And we know that the earliest ancestors of ours originated in Africa and some of the recent ones and and in fact quite a lot of them originated in South Africa and therefore if you start in the place where geographically the people of the world started or evolved first then you will have the greatest genetic diversity in those populations in other words if this is the the root from which all of the branches of the trees come up then that stem has got the most genetic diversity in it and as you go further away from south africa the genetic diversity falls away therefore looking in south african and southern african populations mm-hmm. at their genetic diversity can tell us the the most that we can hope to learn about the all the different types of people on earth and all of the different ways in which we have evolved, where we've come from and what sorts of diseases we may develop and why we look the way we do. And the, this is a bit controversial at the moment, this DNA sequencing business, because when, when people do it for the right reasons, it's a wonderful tool. The problem is that uh, there are some organisations that are seeking to financially exploit this. Who can blame them? Uh, I'm not condemning them, Mm. but the problem is that they're seeking to financially exploit genome sequencing by applying for patents on certain genome sequences. Mm. And the implication of that is that when someone comes along later and says, well, we've identified this gene and it's linked to a certain kind of cancer, if you want to test that person for that gene to see if they're going to get a cancer, 
you've then got to pay the person who's filed that patent to do that test. And effectively, it's like saying, well, we're, we're taking out a patent on something that's uniquely human and belongs to everyone on, on Earth. So how can you take ownership of something which effectively everyone owns? And this, this doesn't seem entirely mm. fair. At the same time, business is business. And so there's quite a controversy raging. What is true, though, is that, and, and you, you can't get round, is the fact that if something is already in the public domain and known about, you can't protect it. So what a lot of other people are doing is to put into the public domain big libraries, in other words, collections of sequences, which they have themselves identified, and once they're in the public domain, anyone can use them for free forever. Mm -hmm. So the politics getting involved here with the science. Thank you very much. Fascinating information indeed. I have a question from last week, um, an SMS. What makes a, color pers a colorblind person colorblind? That's from Ben in Linksfield. Hello, Ben. Well, in your eye, you have a sheet of nerve tissue at the back of the eye called the retina. And the retina converts light into nerve signals, which are then relayed into the brain. And the way the retina does this is by using cells called photoreceptors. We more commonly call them rods and cones. And those photoreceptors have a pigment in them, which, when it is hit by light, it changes the activity of the photoreceptor cell and makes it send off or stop sending off accordingly bursts of nerve activity that the brain can then decode. The rods tend to see black and white but the cones are an adaptation that higher animals like us have and those cones don't contain the same photoreceptive chemical. They contain chemicals that respond uniquely to different colours of the spectrum. And you have cones that respond to red light, you have cones that can see blue light, and you have cones that can see yellow light. Mm -hmm. And when I say they see those lights, they're most strongly activated by that light. They will be less activated by other colours. And what the eye does is it looks at the relative levels of activity of those different cones when we look at something, and it says the red ones are a bit turned on, and the yellow ones are a bit less turned on, and the blue ones are hardly turned on at all when I look at this thing. Therefore, that must be orange. And that's how we decode colour. Mm -hmm. People who are colour blind have a gene which means that they don't make the right pigment in usually the red cones, and this means that they, f they cannot discriminate certain colours at the red end of the spectrum from the things next door, the greens. And for that reason, when they look at something which is of a certain colour, which a person who isn't colourblind would be able to distinguish that's red and that's green, the colourblind person sees them as one and the same because their pigment is responding equally to both that colour and the colour next door in the spectrum, and so they both look the same. Okay, next time you see someone mixing colours and uh, dressing in a particularly interesting way, think about it. They may just be colourblind. All right, we're going to your lines now, on o to your calls on 021-446-0567, Let's go to, is it Zubeda in Weinberg? Hi. Hi, hi, Rudy. Uh, yes, it is Zubeda. Um, hello, Chris. I just hello. to know when, when one switches on the microwave to heat something, for the first, um, you know, if I set it for, let's say, 30 seconds, and I then check and the food is not hot enough, I then, at first, it turns in a clockwise direction. I then close the door again and switch it on for another 30 seconds, then the turntable goes in an anti-clockwise direction. Yes. What's the question? The question is, why does it do that? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's because, yeah, I've noticed this, and um, it's because the motor that runs the turntable, it doesn't mind, because it's on mains electricity, and it is, uh, effectively, mains is going plus, minus, plus, minus, a hundred times a second. It doesn't actually mind whether it turns right or left. And it just depends randomly which way the motor gets started. And as long as the food is rotating in the microwave, and the reason you have a turntable is because the microwaves come out of the side, roughly where the time clock is, where the start button is, and they go across the inside, horizontally, inside the microwave, and they reflect off the far side of the microwave and go back the other way. And they create what's called a standing wave. And you've probably seen this. If you wiggle a skipping rope very fast, you end up with a wave pattern in the skipping rope that almost looks like it's standing still. Have you seen that? I've observed it, but yes, I watch the next time some kids do say that and they do slipping out. Yeah, well, that that means that when the microwave is going across inside the microwave oven, you've got this standing wave pattern. So where the where the wave is moving a lot, the food will cook a lot. But in some places, it will hardly appear to be moving at all. And those are called the nodes. And there, there's very little energy being put into the food. So if you didn't move the food around inside the microwave, it wouldn't cook at those points. Whereas if you rotate the food, either right or left, it doesn't matter which, the food is turning through the hot spots and the cold spots. So different bits of the food are being heated by different amounts all the time. And this means you get more even cooking of the food. And it's just because the microwave, when the motor gets started, it either starts clockwise or starts anti-clockwise and, and then carries on in that direction. I think it's random. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much. It's a very interesting question. Um, Graham Makosonge, stay on the line. I'll chat to you right after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Lines open for you 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Let's go to Makosonke in Soweto and we're chatting to the Naked Scientist this morning. Makosonke, hi. Naked, um, I'd like to ask you this. Uh, with regards to the human genome, uh, we are primates. Um, and uh, Professor Chris Ryan came out with a, uh, released a book two years ago on um, on anthropological account of, of relationships and human interaction. Uh, it was him and, and Dr. Castile de Jetta. Uh, the, the book is set on. Now, my question to you there, it says, you know, our genetic makeup, which I believe, by the way, our genetic makeup is almost 96 to 97% similar to that of primates. As in chimpanzee, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. Now, 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 now. These animals are aggressive. Um, they are, they are, they are polygamous. Uh, they do all sorts of things in terms of behavior. Now, is it not possible that you know we go on and really now just talk about men and not wanting to, you know, to, to go talk about sexual abuses and everything? Is there no genetic uh, explanation to that kind of behavior? Aggression, polygamy, cheating. Um, stealing and also isn't there don't you think that there's an answer in there given that why men are men and why women are women yeah, and display certain characters okay Chris yeah thanks for the question the answer is it's really complicated the diseases that we find easy to study or the conditions or the behaviors are ones in which there is a single gene which is causing that condition 
And we talked about this about a year ago here on the program. Mm. We talked about a piece of research looking at voles and rodents in America. And scientists had successfully tracked down a single gene that makes a certain species of mouse burrow the way it does. And they did some crossing experiments, breeding one subspecies of mouse with another subspecies of mouse, and they were able to change the length and the shape of the burrow these mice make just by fiddling with one genetic region. So that's a very simple trait to understand. But really complicated behaviours, like those which we were just hearing about, they almost certainly reflect the combined interaction of many genes, lots of genes working together, which produces the unique pattern of activity in the brain or the connections in the brain or the relative sizes of different brain areas or the responsiveness of tissues in the brain to hormones in the blood, for example. The numbers of possibilities are huge and therefore it won't come down to one single gene to explain some of these complicated behaviours. It will be the mass action of many. And unpicking that is much more difficult. And whether it's a chimpanzee or a human displaying these traits, it can be really difficult and that the mouse story I mentioned stood out because it was down to one tiny genetic region and was surprising for that region for that reason more normally it would be the combined action of many genes making it a very difficult nut to crack mm-hmm. okay Graham Graham you calling us from Goodwood yes good morning I'm so glad to speak to you <laughs> my question is how reliable are dating methods and by that I don't mean like a dinner in a movie I mean, dating as in the age of the earth and the age of... Dating fossils and all of that. That's the kind of thing, yeah. Chris? Hello, Graham. They're very good, and we're getting better at them. The most commonly used one for recent things is, of course, carbon dating. And this relies on the amount of so-called carbon-14, a radioactive form of carbon which is made in the high atmosphere when solar radiation interacts with nitrogen atoms and turns them into carbon-14. And because that is happening at a roughly steady state, the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere is roughly constant and it is being incorporated into living things like trees by photosynthesis at a roughly constant rate. But of course it stops being incorporated once the tree dies. Uh, or is turned into something, or the food is eaten, and it then goes into the the body of an animal, for example, and then it starts to break down, and uh, the amount of carbon-14 therefore falls over time, and we can trace how much is there, we can identify the relative proportion of carbon-14 to other forms of carbon, other things, and this then enables us to put a fairly accurate date on this. It's accurate going back to about 50,000 years, which is about 10 times the half-life. That means that there is a finite time limit on that dating method. If you go beyond that, it begins to get noisier, much more unreliable, but then then other sorts of dating method can kick in. When you're talking about trying to date, for instance, the age of the Earth, that's four and a half billion years rather than 50,000 years, you need something with much longer half-lives, and here things like uranium step in. So we have a uranium lead clock, which works in a similar sort of way. So scientists can use the relative proportions of different things which are breakdown products or which are made by radioactive decay to put a radioactive clock on things and date them accordingly. And then when you actually go to an archaeological or a paleoanthropological site, for example, then there there are other clues. There may be things which we can have dated elsewhere which are in the context of the find. And so if you find something that we already know how old it is and it is in the context of a set of finds in a location, Mm -hmm. you can then 
say, well, if this is there and we know this is X number of million years old, then it's very likely that the things that are in the same context as oh. it, the same height underground, those are also of a similar age. And then you use multiple methods on the samples and if they all agree at the right dating point, then you can be reasonably sure that uh, you've got it right. So you don't just usually use one thing, you will use a combination of tools, use them all together and effectively where all the lines intersect, that's the most accurate dating measure you're going to get. Thank you very much, Graham. Let's go to Mike in Ren- in Renpark Ridge. Good morning to you, Mike. Hello there. Good morning. Um, I think this is something that we all suffer from, though it's not really a, a, a suffering. Um, when we wake up in the morning, uh, there is often a, a, a caked deposit. Yes, Mike? Mike, Hello? Okay. Uh, he wanted to ask Chris about uh, the deposit in the corner corner of one's eye when, when people first yeah. wake up. Yeah, what we call sleep. Um, this is the vestiges of the material that is secreted into your eye all day. So your eye has tears in it which are made by your lacrimal gland, which is a little glandular tissue which is above the upper outer part of the eye on each side and it filters blood to produce tear film and the tear fluid has in it some antibodies to guard against infection. It also makes other proteins to lubricate the eye, one called mucin, and other chemicals to suppress the action of microorganisms. And this is secreted into the eye continuously and obviously emotion can make the level of secretion go up a bit so you can cry and when you go to sleep because your eyes are not open usually uh, the amount of evaporation of the tear film off of the surface of the eye because you're not showing your eye to the wind for example is lower therefore the tear production is switched down and you make much less in the way of tears and because you're making fewer tears then the fluid tends to become thicker and stickier and it, it often collects around the inner corner of the eye because that is where the tears are drained away. You have a tear duct on the lower eyelid close to your nose, which is a little thing called a punctum. And if you look in the mirror, you'll see a little black dot there, and that is like your tear plug hole. And the tears run across the eye, go down that hole, and it opens into your nose, into a virus structure called the nasolacrimal duct. And so because the tears are running down towards that punctum, if they're thicker thicker and stodgier, then they can sometimes build up some of the extra gunge that they've washed out of your eye during the night Mm. and deposit it around the plug hole. It's rather like the hairs getting stuck in the plug hole in the shower. This is sort of similar, but it's the tear equivalent. Okay. There's an SMS here from a five-year-old who wants to know why airplanes have wings even though they don't flap them. (laughs) Well, the way, in, the way in which a wing works, actually, we have got a, a really nice video we made to explain this because people find this really hard and there's a lot of disinformation out there on the internet about the way win, wings work. So we've made something called the Naked Scientist Scrapbook and we've done a video on how does a wing work. It's on YouTube. So if you go onto YouTube and type Naked Science Scrapbook, okay. how does a wing work, you will find this. But to put it simply... The wing, if you look at the wing of an aircraft, it starts at the front edge and curves backwards and downwards. So at the simplest level, when the plane is flying forward using thrust from the engines, air hitting the wing is pushed in the one hand over the top of the wing, but more importantly it's pushed underneath the wing, and because the wing is curved downwards, the air is being pushed downwards. And if you push air downwards, as Isaac Newton taught us with his third law, then the air must give you an equal and opposite push 
upwards, and this gives lift. So that's the underside of the wing, and the upper side of the wing is also curved downwards, obviously. Air has a tendency to stick to a curved surface. This is called the coander effect, after the guy who first described it. And so air running over the top surface of the wing is also going to stick, and if that air is going to be pulled down because it's sticking to the wing surface, it too is going to give a push up because it's being pulled down, because again of Newton's third law. So in both cases, the air moving downwards over the wing means there's a net force upwards called lift on the wing and therefore on the aeroplane as a whole. All right, give us details again, uh, Chris, of, of where to find the video. Um, yeah, very nice video, ideal for younger people. Uh, go onto YouTube and type in uh, Naked Science Scrapbook and one of those videos, if you type in, if you then add afterwards wing or how does a wing work, you will find it. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. Have a lekker weekend. We'll see you again next week. I should do my best. Thank you, Reedy. Bye-bye. Bye, Chris. That's our Naked Scientist and we always podcast our conversations with him. Just uh, download it from our website anytime after half past one.